All right, this morning we're going to, uh, we're going to dive right back into Acts, uh, and this morning we're going to pick it up where Joe left off in Acts chapter 15, and I'm actually going to backtrack over a few verses, but just so that it paints the context of where we're going this morning, and so without anything further, we're going to go to Acts chapter 15, so if you have your, your Bibles with you, you can turn there, we have it on the screen as well. And so uh, we're going to pick it right up there, and then we're going to dive in. So if you're into uh, putting a title to the message, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I'm entitling this Godly Leadership. And so there's a lot of things we could talk about in this passage, but I just really felt in keeping with the theme of what we've been doing over the last little while and getting ready uh, as we move on into the winter to uh, take a number of months, really, to talk about our values and who we are as a church, I really felt it was important to, to key in on some things that... Uh, have to do with leadership. And so this morning we'll start with reading of the scripture. And so if you want to turn to uh, Acts chapter 15, it starts out in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch, and in Antioch there's a, there's a kerfuffle that takes place about the status of the Gentile believers. And so uh, being sent on their way to the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, so they're on their way to Jerusalem and they're going to settle the question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, we're all adults here. And if I were a male Gentile, I don't think I'd like this too much, especially being an adult. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And of course he's making reference back to uh, his occasion with Cornelius. And God knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so first to speak is Peter. And then after them, after he speaks, the place goes silent and makes way for Barnabas and Paul to start. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers. Now James, we believe, to have been the lead elder, the leader of the Jerusalem church. He replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, Simeon being Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles 
to, uh, to take them from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So they, they meet, they hear the arguments, they settle, and they say, we're going to send the letter to Antioch to declare our position as to where the Gentiles stand in relation to their membership with the church. And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with their beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you yourselves, uh, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So that's the content of the letter. So then they, they were sent off. They went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Wow. Lots going on in this passage. And there is a ton of stuff. And yesterday we were playing, word playing on the word stuff when Ryan and Gord presented really well yesterday on creation and how God creates in our leaders training. And, and we're talking about, you know, God made stuff from no stuff, right? But there's a lot of stuff in this passage. There's a lot of things packed in here. But we're going to focus, we could focus on a lot of things this morning, but we want to take a look at some elements of godly leadership that seem to have existed in the church at this time. And so, first and foremost, godly leadership works in team. And I'm just going to use this verse as a support to that. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so team is a really big part and it's key of leadership. You cannot have leadership without team. At least you can't have good leadership without team leadership. Anybody in business will tell you today, 
that in today's world, if you're not working in team, you're not going to last too long. Oh, you might be successful for a season, but you're not going to be successful for long. And just recently, uh, Steve Jobs passed away. And there's been a lot said about Steve Jobs. And his autobiography came out last Saturday or last Sunday. There's a lot to be said about Steve Jobs and his innovation. There's a lot to be said about his creativity. But let's not kid ourselves. Do you think he did that alone? Do you think he did that in isolation? We all know the answer to that, at least if you know anything about where Apple has come in the last 10 or 15 years, we'll know that it's because he worked in team. He would never claim it for himself. He always strove to make sure that everybody else was recognized as well. I had a chance to actually meet one of his team members. In fact, one of his original founders of Apple, his name is Steve Wozniak. I had a, I had a chance to meet him uh, a number of years ago. And he said the exact same thing. He said the team was critical to the success of the company. In that time, they were fledgling. They weren't doing that well, but they had a vision for the future. And 15 years later, 15 years ago is when I met him, look at where they are now. Amazing. So team is huge. And when we take a look at this first, or this section of Acts chapter 15, we see Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, Judas, and Silas. These guys, make no mistake, men with diverse gifting. Men with diverse gifting. They all came from different perspectives. They all came gifted by God in different areas. Anybody care to guess as to the gifts to the church that Judas and Silas were? Ephesians chapter 4, gifting. They were prophets, right? They were prophets. Barnabas, Paul, and Peter, and James, you have teachers. You have apostles, right? You have pastors. You have people who are gifted in different areas, but they work together. They were together. And it's really interesting, as we see in a few minutes, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all rosy between them. But they worked together in team. They worked together in team. And I mean, all you have to do is look at professional sports today. I know Don hates football. We won't talk about football then. But we'll talk about hockey. And when a team is functioning properly, when a team is functioning properly, even if there are disputes in the team, the team puts the interests of the team prior to it, ahead of the, the needs of the individual. doesn't mean that the needs of the individual aren't, aren't, aren't seen to, but the need of the team is most important. They had diverse personalities. All you have to do is, again, look back in the Scriptures. Do you think that Peter, for example, was a different personality than, say, Paul? Absolutely. In fact... With Peter, it's almost as if Peter is this guy that, you know, had this reputation of kind of speaking before he thought. He acted before he thought, certainly in the garden, when he took the sword and cut off the servant uh, Malchus's ear. And Jesus rebuked Peter and healed Malchus right there and then. Peter was like that. Paul, on the other hand, 
he was really a deep thinker. He, I think, was the type of person that the evidence that we see in the New Testament is the type of person that would have thought a great deal before he did anything. Primarily, though, the similarity in so far as they're diverse in their personality and all these people, the similarity and what draws them together is they're drawn together by one spirit. And so even though they have diverse personalities, they're drawn together by the spirit of God. And of course, they have diverse roles. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why is he the half-brother of Jesus? Because Joseph was his dad. But James, the, lead, the leader, the lead elder of the Jerusalem church, he had a specific role to play. He had a specific role to play. Same with Peter and Paul and Barnabas. They all had specific roles and functions that they moved in. And at the Meeting Place Church, in our leadership development, we have these kinds of things in spades. Let's just start, for example, with the three of us who help lead this church, Kevin and Joe and I. Would it be fair to say that we are diverse in our gifting? It would be. Absolutely. Right? There is no way I could do what Kevin does. I just, I just, it's not about being wired to do the job, but there's a prophetic nature to what Kevin Calhoun brings to the Meeting Place Church in what he brings in terms of his attention to detail and his attention to be able to pave the way forward for future church plants and so on in coming up with and formulating and taking the painful hours that he does in coming up with bylaws and procedures and protections for future churches. That's prophetic, folks. You got to know he has a prophetic gifting. Is it very often that you'll hear him prophesy as we tend to think of it on a Sunday morning? No. Does that mean that he doesn't hear from God? Absolutely not. Does it mean that he will never on a Sunday morning or at any other time during a life group or during a leader's training or any other venue? Does that mean he will never prophesy as we've come to think it? No. But there's a prophetic nature to what he brings to the team. When he puts his pen to paper, it's prophetic. Believe us, it's true. Are we diverse in our personalities? Yes. I am the quiet one of the group. I guess you know me. But we are diverse in our personalities. It can be your greatest strength. It can be your greatest weakness. Right? And when I get to the next point under this bullet, you'll understand how it could be your greatest weakness. But the bottom line is, is that we are very diverse in our personalities. And we're also diverse in our roles, in what we do, what we bring. When we work in team, character is always at the forefront in the church. should be everywhere. Unfortunately, it isn't. But character is always at the forefront. And we have to be people as leaders. If we're leaders in the church, and I mean if we're leaders, elders, if we're leaders 
in leading various ministry areas, if we're leaders in our homes with our families, or if you're single, if you're leading yourself, character is key. So this morning, if you're thinking, well, I'm not a leader, so this message doesn't really apply to me, it absolutely applies to you because you have to lead yourself first. And your character is critical. Your character is critical. And as people of God, we live by a different standard. We live by a different rule of thumb. Such that personal humiliations that we might experience in our lives as they rub together have to be quickly forgotten. We see that with Peter here, you know. We see it with Peter. Because who opposed Peter when it came to the Christians and his, and his attitude towards them in Antioch? Who opposed Peter? Paul did. Check out John read this morning from Galatians. Read on in Galatians chapter 2. Paul said, I opposed him to his face. And that happened prior to this council of Jerusalem. In fact, this passage of Acts chapter 15, this passage is called the Council of Jerusalem. F.F. Bruce, who's a fairly famous uh, Bible commentator, theologian, he says that this passage is actually, he calls it epochal. In other words, it sets and starts a distinct time in the church because this chapter was so critical to the understanding and to the application of a new doctrine to the church, to the Jews, where the Gentiles were included. So a new epoch in the church is signaled with the council at Jerusalem. And Peter had to put away his personal humiliation that he experienced at the expense or at, at, in Antioch in front of everybody because Paul had opposed him because he was wrong because Peter says, I can't eat with these guys. And Paul said, no, you're not right. I mean, you can just imagine how it would have been. It would have been a very difficult thing to rebound from. But what do we see in Acts chapter 15? We see the two of them working in tandem. We see them working together. So after being corrected, he's moves right on. How much better off would we be if we were able to bury our humiliation sometime, if we were able to bury the things, our offenses that maybe have come towards us rightly or wrongly imposed? There are humiliations and offenses that have been done towards me, some right, some wrong, and I wished in my past I could go back and rewind the clock to be able to say, you know what, I wish I would have handled it differently. And so, I can learn. I learn from this. We all can learn from this. That we, we count ourselves as less. Those are those saying that the leaders in working in team, they preferred one another. They gave deference to one another. What's interesting here, and the last time I spoke, I had mentioned that a switch had taken place because in chapter or in Acts, up to I think chapter 12 or so, chapter 13, who was listed first, Barnabas or Paul? It was Barnabas. And then, because God's hand was on Paul, and there was an anointing and a switch in what had taken place, you'll find after that 
after that occurrence that Paul's name starts to get mentioned first. And that's done with intent, folks. That's, the Bible is very, very specific, and it's done with intent. But here we are at the Council of Jerusalem. Who's named first? Barnabas. And I just have this thought, because it's listed here in this fashion, I think Paul probably preferred Barnabas and let him speak. There's food for thought here. There's food for thought. We prefer one another. We, as leaders, whether you're leading your family, do you prefer your wife to other things? To yourself? Husbands? Wives? Do you prefer your husband? Do you give place? You as individuals who aren't married, who are single, how can this be played out in your life? The God of selfishness reigns, right? In theory. We sang this morning that God reigns. But the prince of the power of the air is active, he's alive, and he does the things that he would do even though he knows his days are numbered, and he would want you to be selfish. He wanted you to put your interest ahead of anybody else's. And with these two things in place, they decided to battle over truth and not take sides. It would have been very easy for James here, because James, being Jewish, being the leader of the Jerusalem church, where most of the people, most of the Jewish Christians at this time, did not hold the attitude that Peter did. Did not hold the attitude that Paul did. We, we, kinda, we may have this idea that... that um, you know, that James and the entire Jerusalem church held to this notion that, you know what, we don't, have, we don't follow the law anymore. James was in a, led a church that probably most of the believers, as, as we read and as we, if we do a little bit of research, you'll find that the believers in Jerusalem, a lot of them, the Jewish believers who had converted to, to Christianity, who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they still held to a lot of different laws. And we see that here. The argument is they need to be circumcised. Well, that came from the believers in Antioch, but don't kid yourselves. There were probably more of them that thought that in Jerusalem. And James sacrificed his own preference because his preference, what do you think it would have been? It's comfortable. This is what I know. I'm leading a group of people that believe this. But yet he sacrificed his preference for, for principle. And he moved on. Notice who's the last to speak. It's James. James is in authority. The others spoke first, then James. And it says with authority. It says with authority. So God, the leadership works in team. They find their solutions together in God. Find our solutions together. And so they got together and they realized, okay, there's a couple things here we have to get sorted out. There's a couple things that are really important. Got to lay aside our agendas, whatever they might be. So if our agenda is that the Gentile Christians 
have to follow all these rules and laws and so on. They have to be circumcised. They lay aside that agenda. And together, they all came together and they said, you know what? We're going to move on together. We're going to find our solution in what God is showing us. And through prayer and a lot of conversation, we end up with this unanimity in the spirit. And so they were able to find a middle ground, as it were. Did it, does it cross your mind? Is it, does, don't you wonder? Is like, okay, why would they say you've got to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, and to abstain from meat from uh, animals that have been strangled or haven't been, had their blood drained? Why do they say that? You wonder, I, when I first I said, what, what's going on here? But it's got nothing to do It's got nothing to do with following the law. It's got to do with this. It's got to do with the fact that the Gentile Christians in Antioch and in Jerusalem, but we're addressing here Antioch, the Gentile Jews, the Gentile Christians in Antioch, if they were going to fellowship with the Jews, they had to lay down a few things. And in order to be able to um, prefer the weaker brother, as it were, they were going to have to make some concessions if they were going to fellowship together. Because according to the Jews and their practice, see, they hadn't come as far along in terms of experiencing their freedoms in Christ, rightly or wrongly. Remember that, rightly or wrongly, I would say wrongly. They were still holding on to some things, not experiencing the fullness of the grace of God. And so therefore, the onus was on the Gentiles to give place to them. And to put it in the vernacular, to suck it up. If you're going to fellowship with these guys, even though they may be wrong, and they are, if you want to fellowship with them, if we want to move forward, then there's a couple things, dietary things, even though they don't apply to you, it's not the law, it's got nothing to do with salvation, you're going to need to sit with them and you're going to need to do that. We have examples of that even in our own church. If, if, if you're having a party, if you're gathering together with people and you know that there are people coming to your party that have had issues with alcohol in their past, whether it was attitudinal or by experience, and you're having a party, my thinking is that maybe we should prefer that person. We're not making a law out of it. Because if you are one who takes a drink of wine or have a beer or whatever, as I would, there's a big difference between what I do in my home if I'm going to have a glass of wine with my meal or if I'm going to have a glass of wine with Barb on a Friday night after a long day or a long week. That's a lot different. But we have to be sensitive. We have to be sensitive to the needs of others. And that's what they were doing in declaring this. They were saying that. And what about sexual immorality? Why would they say that? It's because it was rampant. So Gentiles, don't think that you're, you know, that there's an implication here, and F.F. Bruce talks about it, there's an implication here that, you know, lest the Gentiles feel that they're better than the Jewish believers, they stick the sexual immorality thing in there because actually they had a bigger problem with sexual immorality than the Jewish believers did. Now, does that apply to us today? 
Absolutely. Because we live in a society, and I don't have to go into it, we live in a society that is totally dull to the fact that sexual immorality is a problem. We don't even call it a problem anymore. If a person has a sexual addiction, it's a disease that they caught. It's true. We treat it that way. So there's a reason why this is stated. It's because Gentile Christians coming out of a non-Christian, or sorry, a non-Jewish secular society brought in with them their dull attitude towards the issue of sexual immorality. And so it's addressed here. And so unanimity emerges in this letter and they're able to present a truly united front to the church. And so leadership here, being in team, very diverse in many different ways, having character on display for everybody to see. And that's why it says, you know, that leaders are going to be required for more. You know, you're you're held to a higher higher standard, a higher account, because when you're a leader, you're you're in the public eye. You're in the eye of the church. It's hard. But that's what we're called to. Again, as Joe said last week, you know, when you hear people say, well, we don't need leaders in the church. We can have church without leadership. I, I, I don't get it. That's it's right here. We need leadership that finds their solutions in God. Secondly, godly leadership embraces the word and the spirit. I won't read the scripture, but basically, Peter, Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They talk about the experiential aspect of the Gentiles receiving the Spirit. It was something they could see. It was something they could hear. They, I mean, when you receive the Spirit of God, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's something that is evidential, that is in front of you that you can see with your eyes and you may hear with your ears. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the only evidence or the first evidence of being baptized in the Spirit is to speak in tongues. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, there should be some evidence. And in all likelihood, it could be that. It could be many other things too. Prophesying. You can imagine what it could have looked like. So first of all, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul share about the experiential. James shares from the Scriptures. And so the Word and the Spirit are inseparable. You cannot, you cannot function as a church without experiencing both word and spirit together. The con- convincing argument, of course, is the fact that the spirit fell on the Gentiles. Cornelius' household, before they even responded to the gospel, for goodness sake. Amazing. God's hand was on them. Experience and the scriptures go hand in hand. And so James, in quoting the scriptures, says, you know what? Everything they just said, this has been foretold in the scriptures. This has been what was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's all here. You're just seeing the evidence of it here. So the experience of the Gentiles goes hand in hand with the word. And always remember that experience submits to the scriptures every time. If someone has an experience that's outside of what we see in the Bible, 
I would ignore it, to be honest. When you embrace the word and spirit as leaders, leaders in yourself, for yourself, leaders in the home, leaders in the church, elders, whatever the case might be, it provides a mechanism for a radical display of grace to flow. Grace is powerful and flows in the Spirit of God. So if we're a church that only focuses on the Word, we're going to have a seriousness towards sin that leads to intolerance. If you, don't, if, you have a, if you have a body of believers where the Spirit of God is not even believed in, in terms of what He does today, it's called a cessationist view, that the Holy Spirit and His gifts, they're not moving today, the tendency will be, the tendency will be that that body of believers will be so focused on the Word that you'll be intolerant to people. A seriousness towards sin. But if your spirit only, in terms of your emphasis being everything on the, on the Holy Spirit, and you know what, oh, Jesus kissed me this morning, and, you know, and it's all that, and there's nothing, you know, it's Jesus with the blow-dried hair, and, and it's not tied to the Word of God, and, you, and, and it's, there's not this, not this marriage with truth. What happens is we can become very complacent to sin. And so you, see, you have two sides of the same coin. So compassion, you'd say, well, we have compassion towards sinners. But in that case, where the word isn't taken as the word of God, complacency can set in. But what we want is we want a church that really can only exist in the word and the spirit so that there's zero tolerance for sin, but yet radical compassion for the person that messes up. We have to have that. We have to have that. We have to reflect Christ as he really is. Christ hated sin. Jesus hates sin. But what did he say to the woman caught in adultery? What did he say to her? He said, get up. Go sin no more. Godly leadership that embraces word and spirit creates an environment of safety and supernatural joy in the church. We see that in this passage. There's a sense of security provided by strong leadership in a church. In a family where there's not strong leadership in a family, you'll see very insecure kids being produced. Barb and I in our job see it all the time. We see kids that, because there's nothing going on in the home, they're very insecure in their, in their ability to receive love, to give love, in their ability to be able to attach themselves appropriately to people in relationship, all kinds of things. The maladies that can occur. Guess what, folks? They extend themselves to the church. When we have weak leadership, there's no environment of safety. We had an environment of safety here this morning. The Holy Spirit is manifesting Himself in our meeting. I hope it's fairly clear that there's a, a flexible, organic but clear leadership in this meeting that provides a sense of security and safety for everyone. And through it, even in tough times, the church is filled with joy. And this was a tough time for Jerusalem and for Antioch. It was a tough time. But what do we see over and over again in the passage? You see references to joy. You see references to rejoicing. You see another reference to peace. 
So you see, it's really neat. Because what happens in that is God's Holy Spirit provides a prophetic spirit for us to be able to receive his freshness. Grace enables us to do hard things. Grace enables us to be ruthless. Against the things that are against God. So the prophetic spirit of Christ abounds. Judas and Silas go to Antioch. Love it. What do they do there? They prophesy over the people. The contents of the letter are solidified and given weight by the prophetic. An amazing thing. They stay there and they shared many words. Were they just yattering on? No, they were sharing prophetic, encouraging, building up, strengthening words to the church in Antioch. Wonderful to see that. Lastly, godly leadership will be courageous. And these guys were courageous. James stands up and says, therefore my judgment. When's the last time you heard us say that? But he had to. You see, because they were coming against some things. They were coming against the face of tradition. I don't need to go into the details. But James, as I said before, wasn't the majority voice in this. But when it comes to tradition in our neck of the woods, we have to always be prepared to ask ourselves the why of what we do, why we do things. Why do we do stuff? Why are we doing it anyway? You know, there's some things you just got to stick a fork in. Say, you know what? We're done with it. There are. And some of them are good things. Some of them are really good things. But sometimes we just have to say enough is enough. You know what? This, just, this, this boat ain't floating anymore. We've got to move on. Sometimes we have to teach and we have to help people unlearn things and to be retaught in the truth of God. Because people come to us, I'll be quite frank, there are people that, some of them are here, some of you have come to us from other traditions, and there's some things that you've had to, in humiliation sometimes, in humility, unlearn some things and understand that the truth of God is this. Does that mean we're the perfect church? Absolutely not. I don't need to go there. They were courageous in the face of what was popular, in the face of public opinion. They were courageous. And we have to be on guard against the spirit of the age. They were courageous in naming sexual immorality because you know what? It's part of that. And we have to be courageous as leaders. You have to be courageous as parents. You have to be courageous as an individual. You singles, you've got to be courageous to fly in the face of public opinion. You've got to be courageous when you go to that party and you're there because you just want to be a friend to your friends and you're not taking part in the things they're doing. You've got to be careful. And sometimes the biggest and best thing you can do is run. How many times have you heard that one? We have to be careful and guard ourselves against greed and comfort. These are enemies of the gospel. Joe went into that last week and the week before. I don't need to go into it, but the whole prosperity thing, all that stuff, everything out there is saying, you know, you need to be comfortable, Freedom 55, find an island in the Caribbean. It's an enemy of the gospel. I'm not saying anything against vacations because you know I like to take them. You've got to realize that to be a Christian is really to be countercultural. It has absolutely nothing to do with your dress. It has nothing to do with how you do your hair. It has nothing to do with the music you listen to. In fact, the people that think they're the most countercultural are the ones that are most sucked up by the culture. It's true. And you don't have to be 
an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old, or a 50-year-old, or a 75-year-old to be sucked up in the spirit of the age. To be countercultural is to be a Jesus follower and to be a real Jesus follower. In the face of false teaching, they were courageous. And they pitted themselves against the false teachers. I mean, they opposed them. Can you imagine what that looked like? They were calling a spade a spade. There's some false teaching that we have to call a spade a spade to. There's some things that Joe did two weeks ago, talking about, again, prosperity and how, you know, Jesus wants us to be rich. It's not there, folks. But we also have to make sure that when we do correct, we correct in love, that we're not doing it with a heavy hand, that we do it with humility, and we do it peaceably, and we do it softly. Now, sometimes you have to maybe raise your voice. But you have to do it biblically. And finally, we have to be unswerving regarding closed-fisted doctrine. There are things, folks, that we are not going to bend on as a church. And as a leadership, we're not going to do it. And as we go forward in these next months, we're going to go through our values that we hold to as a church that we believe is a biblical church. They're not New Frontiers values, folks. We feel that they're biblical values. Some of them are like this. Most of them are like this. They're ones that, as Luther would say, I can stand and I can do no other. And so as we move forward together, that's what we're going to explore. Let's stand. Father, this morning we thank you for your grace and your mercy that enables us to lead ourselves. We thank you for your grace by your spirit that helps us to lead our families. Father, we're thankful for your grace that empowers us to live by the the truth of your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us this week. You would help us in our day-to-day. You would help us to be courageous. You would help us to be ones that would stand against the culture of the the tide of the culture that would want us to to move away from truth. Father, we pray that you would help us to stand against traditions that will do nothing but make us miserable. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit. Lord, would you empower us? Lord, we pray as leaders, God, would you help us? God, would you give us your grace and your mercy, Lord? Would you forgive us where we go wrong? Would you help us, God? Lord, we need you. We need you. Holy Spirit, we're in love with you. Empower us. Give us the ability, Father, for this week. In Jesus' name, amen.